Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the letter 1 Peter, chapters 4 and 5. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. So as to live for the rest of your earthly life, no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. You have already spent enough time in doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation, and so they blaspheme. But they will have to give an accounting to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is proclaimed even to the dead, so that though they had been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. The end of all things is near, therefore be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking with the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Yet, if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear his name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Therefore, let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Now, as an elder myself and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, whom I consider a faithful brother, I have written this short letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Your sister church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The word of God for the people of God. And all of God's people say thanks be to God. Author of life, we thank you for your word. And we ask that as we reflect upon it this morning, that your spirit would be with us to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. In this season of Eastertide, we've been working our way through the letter of 1 Peter. In this short letter, we've managed to learn about the entirety of what it means to live as Easter people. We began with the faith and the living hope into which we've been reborn through the death and resurrection of Christ. We then built on that by learning that this faith and this hope into which we've been reborn aren't things that will just happen to us by accident. It's not as though we accept Jesus into our lives and magically begin to live a life of Christian perfection. No, Peter tells us that we have to discipline ourselves and that the discipline that shapes our life is love. This brought up the question as to what we are building our discipline on. And the answer was, of course, Jesus. Every action in our lives is guided by the life of the one whose death and resurrection brought us into the family of God. So in addition to the discipline of love, we are to square our actions with the plumb line of justice and righteousness. At this point, we were better able to consider what this looks like in action. We were reminded of the fact that Christ did not return abuse for abuse, that he suffered for the sake of righteousness, that when Christ showed the world what it looked like for God to walk the earth, the world rejected him. Therefore, if we are to live like Christ, if we are to honor our allegiance to the Lord our God, then we too have to be unafraid to live a life freed from the fears of the world. We have to be unapologetic in our commitment to the truth of the God of life. Then last week we started to circle back. We were reminded that all of this we enter into through Christ and by the Spirit, we are prepared for this love of life and justice by the waters of baptism. And now this week, 
we tie it all together. And I know that even as a summary, that was long. So let me give it to you again in six points. One, faith and hope is the product of the resurrection. Two, faith and hope are also the invitation to a life of discipleship. Three, discipleship is centered on love and justice. Four, living a life of discipleship sets us in opposition to the world because our only allegiance is to God. Five, baptism marks our entry into that life of discipleship. And now six, all of these together result in a Christ-like life. So let's talk about what it means to arm ourselves with Christ-like intentions in the middle of this pandemic. We are being confronted with difficult decisions on a daily basis that are novel for most of us. Let us talk about what it means to live a life according to the discipline of love. Let us talk about where our trust and our loyalties abide. Because when I look at the world right now, I see a lot of people saying a lot of things about God that are not only lacking any scriptural basis, but that are anti-scriptural. That is to say, they are contrary to the gospel revealed through Jesus Christ. I see a lot of things being said that don't stem from the good news of the gospel, but from the false worship of political ideologies, economic idols, and self-centeredness. The first thing I want to address is perhaps the least malicious of the ideas that I've seen floating around. It seems well-intentioned on the surface, but ultimately is a misguided interpretation of what it means to trust in God. I'm speaking of the idea that if we wear a face mask or take precautionary measures when we go into public, that we are living a life of fear and that we are therefore not being loyal to God because we are giving in to a fear of death. There are a couple of things to be said about this. First, we wear a mask and we take precautions for the sake of others as much as for the sake of ourselves. It's a matter of love for us to do what we can to keep those around us safe. When we think of Jesus' ministries, we could look to the numerous occasions on which he provided healing. The God of life is concerned about our physical health and well-being. Second, it's one thing to fear death, but it's another thing entirely to actively court death. If you were receiving a medical treatment that weakened your immune system and your doctor told you that there was a set of habits that could reduce your risk of complications, say, wearing a face mask or not being around people, would it be a sign of distrusting God to listen to your doctor? Of course not. Or, as a diabetic, if I told my doctor that I didn't need insulin because I have God... Should I be shocked when I go into a diabetic coma? Of course not. God gave us the gift of reason. He gave us brains for a reason. 
knowing that there is a way to reduce our risk of contracting a deadly disease and choosing not to do what we can is not a sign of trust. It's a rejection of our God-given intellectual gifts. Third, when Jesus is confronted by the devil while he wandered the desert, he's told by the devil, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off the highest temple because God will protect you from harm. Do you remember how Jesus responds? Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When we decide that we have the freedom to be careless with our lives because we think that God is going to protect us, we have failed the temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness. When we ignore the advice of experts who are trying to keep us safe, we are actually putting the Lord our God to the test. So what does it look like for us as individuals to put on Christ-like intentions right now? It means having enough love for our neighbors to act in ways that reduce their risk of illness and death. It means using the gift of reason that God has given us to think about what best protects the precious lives of all of God's children, including ourselves. And it means not putting the Lord to the test. When we know that whether you're jumping from the top of a building or exposing yourself to an illness, the natural consequence is that you are risking harm to yourself. And when we do that, we put God to the test and we say, okay, God, prove that you can protect me. The other big idea is the more malicious conversation that's occurring. Since the pandemic began to affect our nation, there has been a debate about what the appropriate measures are to limit the spread of illness. And there can be reasonable, good-faith disagreements about what those measures should be. Let me say that again. There can be reasonable, good-faith disagreements about what those measures should be. However, there have been a number of arguments put forth in bad faith that are directly contrary to the spirit of the gospel, and they need to be named as such. The argument that is most clearly contrary to our allegiance to a God of life is that certain segments of society just need to accept that they will die in order for the economy to continue. In scripture, the primary concern was child sacrifice. There, a number of laws in Leviticus 18 and 20, as well as Deuteronomy 12 and 18, that forbid the sacrifice of children to Moloch. The prophets, on a number of occasions, denounced the kings who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord for restoring the sites of child sacrifice to the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. The binding of Isaac can be read as a subversion of the practice of child sacrifice in the time of Abraham. 
Now, in our time, it's not the children who are being asked to appease the deity Moloch, but our elders to appease the deity economy. Any argument that is willing to trade human lives for the generation of wealth is soundly rebuked by the law, the prophets, and the life of Jesus Christ. Again, let me reiterate that there are reasonable disagreements that can be had over the correct policies. As people who are guided by the values of love and justice, we can discuss these policies by asking things like, who is most likely to be hurt if we make a mistake? Who are we exposing to danger if we get things wrong? Whose lives are being deemed expendable and whose lives are being safeguarded? We may not always land on exactly the same policy when we ask these questions but we will at least be finding answers that are consistent with our shared Christian identity. What I'm speaking about this morning are the unreasonable disagreements that are contrary to our beliefs as followers of Christ. Which brings me to the the debate that has been one of the most contested flashpoints. What do we do about our worship spaces. There seems to be a misconception floating around that simply because our doors are closed, that the church is closed. That somehow not being able to meet in our buildings stops us from being the body of Christ. You and I know that this is not true, and it has never been true of the church. This type of thinking fundamentally misses the reality of the church. The church is not the building that we worship in. The church is not the style of our worship. The church is the people. The church is the body of Christ made manifest in the shared faith of every person who calls Jesus their Lord. In fact, the church is every single believer throughout the span of time. As one cloud of eternal witnesses, we gather together with our ancestors in the faith, as well as our descendants who are yet to come. The church does not cease to function simply because it looks or feels a little different from the way that we are used to. Nor does the church cease to remain an essential, vital part of our lives simply because our worship, classes, or socializing have moved to a different medium? Is God's grace any less powerful in your life because we haven't been sitting in our pews? Are the words of scripture any less true because they're not being read from a lectern? Are you no longer able to pray or to read the Bible because you are in your home? Is the Holy Spirit only to be found within the walls of our sanctuary? Of course, you know the answers to these questions. So ask yourselves, 
Would it be loving for us to risk the lives of our friends, our brothers and sisters through Jesus Christ, so that we can go back to the comfort of our routines? Would it be just for us to return to worship while telling the most vulnerable members of our community that they should stay away for their own health? Do these sound like the intentions that Christ would have for his body? The church, that one holy, catholic, and apostolic body of Christ, is being weaponized as a tool in the culture wars of the world. But we will not bow to the powers of sin and death, because we know that our foundation is Christ. We know that living according to the way of God is to make love our discipline and justice our plumb line. So let me be clear about one thing, my friends. The decision about when, where, or how we will gather together as Christians has never and will never be dictated by a political agenda or affiliation. We will continue to worship our God by walking in the ways of love and justice. We will continue to be people who behave in accordance with our sole allegiance to the God of life. In short, we will arm ourselves with the intention of Christ. Amen. Please pray with me. God, who is the three in one, you are our strength and our comfort. You are the one in whom we place our trust and our allegiance. Teach us to walk in your ways. Arm us with your intentions of love and justice, so that we might see the days when righteousness will roll like a mighty river. Keep us ever in your mercy. Amen.